We're preach- I'm preaching this morning uh, about forgiveness, which makes it good that I have to start with a confession. The reason we just shared the piece ahead of the sermon was because I wanted to preach while you were all under the influence of a powerful, mind-altering drug. The reason I got you to share the piece piece before I preached this morning was that just by shaking hands raises the blood level of a chemical called oxytocin by 2 or 3% each time you shake hands. Each time you hug somebody, around about 5 to 8%. If it's somebody you know well, maybe 10 to 12%. If you got all Middle Eastern and Jesus about it and you were kissing people on both cheeks, around about 12 to 15%. Actually, singing worship songs before we started this would have already raised you maybe even 10 or 15%. The good news for me preaching is that the effect of oxytocin lasts around about 30 minutes. So the clock (laughs) is running. And oxytocin has wonderful effects on the human body. It makes you calmer, makes you more focused. You're better able to hear what I'm saying. Importantly for me, it makes you more trusting. I could say anything at this point. Oxytocin is a powerful brain-altering drug, but you can feel its physical effects on your body. It's lowered your heart rate and lowered your blood pressure. There are oxytocin receptors in the heart, which is why on Valentine's Day we draw hearts and, and flowers and things, but the hearts come from the fact that we used to think that we loved with our heart. And in fact, we do. There are lots of oxytocin receptors in our heart. There's also a thing called the vagus nerve, which uh, intercedes the heart and reaches all the way down to the gut. So anybody who, when they were hugged by Ray Tiju, just then felt it in their gut, that's actually another place. You can actually have a gut feeling about something, and that's related to this same chemical, the chemical oxytocin. But the effect that's most important is the effect that oxytocin has on your mind. Oxytocin is the reason that we can trust one another. It's the reason that we fall in love. Oxytocin floods a mother's body as she gives birth and creates a bond that will last a lifetime. As she's nurturing and breastfeeding a baby, oxytocin is released. It helps her to feel calm and comfortable, helps her to focus on what she's doing. And the flooding of oxytocin creates and reinforces the bond that will last a lifetime. If they treat a female animal with a chemical that stops her from receiving oxytocin, after giving birth, she will reject the baby as if it was a stranger. It means nothing to her. Oxytocin sets up the bonds and relationships that for you and me will last a lifetime. Now, it's not just hugging and shaking hands. Uh, Well, we can get oxytocin from singing and worship. We can get oxytocin by watching uh, a movie together. You can get oxytocin, as I always see uh, Gene and Mike doing, just by holding hands as you walk along the road. These are the bonds that set us up in community and last with relationships for a lifetime. So they call oxytocin the love hormone, the cuddle hormone, or the trust chemical. But actually, oxytocin doesn't work by creating love. Oxytocin works by suppressing fear. You see, the human condition is this. We're told by neuroscientists that humans have this fight-or-flight mechanism. People talk about it all the time. But really, the science of your brain says that most people have a love and a fear. And the good news is that the love is the natural part of you. But most people live their lives consumed by fear. So this is the bit where we leave the chemistry and the science and we go back to the Bible. Because that sounds familiar, doesn't it? That our lives are, if you like, lived in this balance between a life lived in love and a life influenced by fear. We read in 1 John 4 verse 18, There is no fear in love. Chemists 
could tell you that. They've only just worked it out in the last five years. But that was written 2,000 years ago. Because perfect love drives out fear. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Oxytocin is not a love hormone. It's an anti-fear hormone. In our lives, the whole human condition is a balance between that love and fear. Love is our natural condition. And when we read in the Bible that bit at Genesis and we talk about original sin, I find that hard to connect to, but I find it much more easy to understand when I think about my life as this balance between love and fear. What happened in Genesis was this. Adam and Eve were not just in love with one another, but they were in close harmony and relationship with God until something happened, until fear came into their lives, until they knew the power of guilt and shame. And then if you look uh, at Genesis 3, verse 8, in the garden, in the cool of the evening, the Bible sets it up saying there's nothing to be afraid of. It's perfectly safe, it's perfectly natural, and God is walking in this nice garden. It doesn't say there's a leopard, it doesn't say there's anything scary going on at all, just as has happened many and many times before. But now for the first time, Adam and Eve have fear in their lives. And as God walks through the garden, Adam's hiding behind a bush. Why? Because fear has conquered love. Now, as a father who had children who played hide-and-seek, I have a pretty good idea that God knew where Adam was. But he played along, as parents do, and where's Adam? Oh, I've got no... Where could Adam possibly be? Adam's hiding behind the bushes because for the first time he saw God and he was afraid. You see, oxytocin powers our human relationships. It drives us together. It lets us have that close relationship with our friends, our family, and our loved ones. It also powers our relationship with God. But those relationships are destroyed by, are impossible to create if your life is ruled by fear. Guilt, fear, and shame. Forgiveness matters. Many of us here today know that same sense of shame, guilt, and fear, living with that nagging doubt. Forgiveness matters. This week at the trial of Oscar Pistorius, on the first day of the trial, June Steenkamp, the mother uh, of Reva, the victim, came out into the press and said that she wanted to be at the trial so that Oscar had to look her in the eye. But she had chosen whether he was to be found guilty or to be found innocent, that she would forgive him because she didn't want to live the rest of her life in bitterness. Forgiveness matters. Sometimes when I hear preaching on forgiveness, I find it hard to apply to myself, because I, I've never murdered anybody, raped anybody, stolen anything significant. I did steal a, a rubber from school, you know, a pencil eraser, when I was really small. And it had the most profound effect on me. It horrified me. I was only about six or seven years old. And, and it just burned into my conscience that I had this, this stolen object at home. I eventually ground it up into powder so it would be destroyed and never discovered. So it was useless to me. I'd stolen this thing, but I couldn't use it because it just so ate at my conscience that eventually I had to just grind it up and destroy it. I had to get rid of it before it destroyed me. Forgiveness matters. Jesus put it right at the center of the Lord's Prayer. He put it right after our daily bread. Because it's not about forgiving the big things. It's about a life lived in love, not fear. It's not about pie in the sky when you die. It's not about the judgment at the end. 
It's about freeing you up to live in the loving relationships that God has called you to now and to have an open and loving relationship with him. Forgiveness matters day by day by day because without it, it blocks our ability to form these loving relationships. We're going to look, uh, if you keep your finger in the passage, Matthew 18, verse 21. Josh shared the first bit uh, of that, the introduction, the setup, if you like, with us. Peter has come to Jesus and asked him how many times should he forgive. Jesus has just spoken uh, about uh, relationships uh, with brothers and sisters when they go wrong uh, in the passage immediately preceding this. And so Peter comes up with this question and he asks Jesus, how many times should we forgive? Now, as Josh said, the rabbis actually had limited the, the, the practical number. They'd actually suggested three. So Peter was trying to be generous by saying seven. He thought Jesus would give him an oxytocin-affirming hug and say, wow, Peter, that's great. But, you know, it's really only three. Three is more than enough. And Jesus gives this remarkable answer. It's, it can be translated as 77 or as 70 times 7, 490, as Peter said uh, very quickly. A number, essentially, that's just too big to count. It's not worth keeping score. And it's because of the reaction of the disciples to being given that big number that Jesus tells this story, this parable that comes afterwards. Now, we know this is a story... Uh, that's being told by Jesus, not a real sort of piece of news. He's he's not giving an actual king or an actual kingdom because he says in the beginning there, this is how the kingdom works. He can see on the faces of the disciples that they don't understand. How can we possibly be asked to forgive and to forgive and to forgive and to forgive over and over and over again? It doesn't make sense. Now, interestingly, it did make sense to Jewish people that you didn't always have to repay something that you owed. There was a concept that, that when uh, a debt was taken into account, the whole circumstances were taken into account. The cost of the person, the cost of the person who was owed the money, the circumstances, had they, sh- had they changed, would there be more harm to the person giving than receiving? Now, interestingly, it was the Greeks who came up with the concept that if there was a debt, it absolutely had to be repaid, which is interesting. Because in 2008, when the Greeks ran out of money, it was only Greek thinking that meant they really had to repay it. Before that, there was a concept that really it only had to be repaid if the harm was better than the, than the benefit to the two sides of the counterparty. So Jesus is calling back some ancient Jewish thinking. And he's saying, no, we're called to forgive not three times, not seven times, not even 490 times, but to keep on forgiving. Now that makes no sense at all. Until you hear the story that Jesus told. And in that story, there are some facts that are really quite remarkable. Some big kingdom thinking. This story means that either Jesus doesn't understand basic economics. Or the kingdom is so much bigger than we can possibly imagine. Embedded in this story are some facts that when you think about the kingdom, make you say, wow. Make you humbled. Make you realize who the king is that Jesus is talking about and what this forgiveness is. Would you take a look at the story? Because on the face of it, it's really simple. We all know the story. There's a man who owes a lot of money. Uh, He gets forgiven it. He goes back home. He's owed basically nothing by this other guy. Uh, Doesn't forgive him. The king gets angry. He goes to jail. Job done. No, this is what Jesus actually says. And when you hear it, you'll see why I'm saying that Jesus doesn't seem to have a basic grasp of economics. So, Jesus says, this is how the kingdom works. It is the day of settlement of debts to the king. Let's stop there for a moment. Jesus says, this is the day of settlements to the king, to his father. Jesus says that day is coming. There will be a day 
when debts have to be repaid. Don't have time to pause there for long. But Jesus says this is how the kingdom works. There will come a day when all debts have to be repaid. He's not talking about a real historical king. He's talking about his father. And then he says there's a man who owes the king some money. And notice he says the man is bought before the king. He doesn't come willingly. He doesn't show up of his own account. The man is bought before the king because he owes him some money. Now, here's the bit where it's really important to understand because it changes the whole story. How much did the guy owe? It says in the passage 10,000 talents, which is not something you can go to the Bureau de Change and just take your pounds and turn them into talents. So what does it mean? Well, Eugene Peterson translates it as $100,000 in the message to sort of modernize it, so it's a fair amount of money. The only problem is that Eugene Peterson is wrong. 10,000 talents was a comedically, cartoonishly, ridiculously large amount of money. 60 million days' work for a laborer. So what it means in today's money is not $100,000, it's not even £100,000, it's not a million pounds, it's not 10 million pounds, it's not 100 million pounds, it's not even that number that the Greeks taught us all in 2008 of the billion. It's not 10 billion, it's not 100 billion, it's not even 1,000 billion, which is the word we've all had to get used to talking to the banks and debt about, of a trillion. If you take the number of days laboured for 10,000 talents at minimum wage, it's 1.2 trillion pounds. Which means either Jesus didn't understand basic economics, or the kingdom is way bigger than we thought. The man's bought before the king owing 1.2 trillion pounds. To put that in perspective, the entire UK national debt is almost exactly 1.2 trillion pounds. That's enough for everybody in this room to owe 20,000 pounds personally, every man, every woman, and every child, and in fact, everybody in the entire United Kingdom. Every man, every woman, every child has had borrowed 20,000 pounds, which when you add it together, is exactly 1.2 trillion pounds, which this guy owes on his own, free and clear, to the king. No wonder he had to be dragged there. So Jesus says this guy owes 1.2 trillion pounds, and here's my favorite bit of the whole story, because the guy goes, um, could you just give me a little more time? <laughs> it's ridiculous. This man must have known that the day of settlement to the king was coming. Presumably there was a flyer somewhere that said it. And Jesus says he owed 1.2 trillion pounds which tells us a couple of things. Number one, the king is a generous king. He just keeps giving and giving whatever he's asked, just a generous king. But Jesus says the day of settlement came, and the guy didn't seem to really understand the seriousness of his debt, so he's dragged before the king, and he's told he owes 1.2 trillion pounds. Jesus has deliberately made a figure that the man obviously could never repay on his own. But just like you and I, I think I have trouble putting money in my pension. Do you do that? It seems like it's going to be a long way off. It's one of those things that you just kind of don't really do. And I think our concept of the kingdom and the debt that we owe is like that. It's something we'll sort out when we get to the end. Jesus is saying, by the time you get to the end, you're going to owe too much. It's too late to wait till the day of settlements. Because God will come to you and he'll say, you owe 1.2 trillion pounds. And you'll be like, ah, yeah, I left my wallet. Actually, I left my wallet over there. So, I, I, you know, if I could just, just, just give me a couple of days and, you know, and we'll make it good. Jesus says, you will owe a debt that it just is simply not possible for you to repay. 
You will never work your way out of it. You will never be comfortable knowing that the day of settlements is coming, knowing what the debt is. Jesus says there is only a third way that we can deal with this debt, and that is to throw ourselves on the mercy of the king. 10,000 talents was a lot of money. When, uh, when King Herod died, they took up a special death tax across the whole of Galilee and Perea. And recorded in, in the historian Josephus' notes was that the entire tax take from every citizen across those two kingdoms was 200 talents. There was no way one man could repay this. Actually, there was no way that everybody in the kingdom could pay this. This was more money than was in earthly circulation at the time when Jesus told this story. So either Jesus doesn't understand economics or we just cannot grasp the size of the kingdom. Because Jesus says that when the man throws himself upon the mercy of the king, the king says... I'm happy to remit or to cancel, I think it says in the NIV, or to remit the debt. He literally, the word says, dismissed it. He sent the debt away. You could translate the debt, uh, translate the word as forgiveness, but it literally means in the Greek, as far as the east is from the west. Do you know that biblical expression? He banished the debt. He sent it away. This, says Jesus, is how the kingdom works. The king will banish your debt. Jesus, as he hung upon the cross, cried out, it is finished. An accounting term, meaning paid in full. The debt is banished. Jesus says it doesn't matter how much you owe, as long as you don't owe more than 1.2 trillion anyway, your debt will be banished if you throw yourself upon the mercy of the king. Don't live a life in fear that one day you will have to repay a debt that you can't possibly repay. Don't live a life struggling to repay a debt that you cannot possibly earn however hard you work. Jesus says, throw yourself on the mercy of the king. That's how kingdom economics works. But the story has a second part. The guy goes back home and there's somebody who owes him some money. So now you get where the story is going, don't you? Jesus is, is exaggerating. He's, t- he's creating this big, colourful, cartoonish story. So Jesus said the guy was owed 1.2... So the guy owed the king 1.2 trillion pounds. So we've got it. Jesus is exaggerating. So how much does he say this man is owed? How cartoonishly small does he make this debt? Eugene Peterson says 10 US dollars in the message. But it wasn't 10 US dollars or 10 pounds. It wasn't... Five pounds or one pound. It wasn't 50 pence or 10 pence or one P or even half a P. Because Jesus didn't actually belittle the debt that the man was owed at all. Jesus in the story says the man went home and met with a guy who owed him about five grand. About the price of a second-hand car or a nice holiday. Jesus never says that your fear or your pain or your hurt is not real. He never belittles it or says it doesn't matter. What he says is that the things that you forgive are real, and they will have hurt you, and they are substantial, until you see them in the perspective of kingdom economics. Jesus doesn't say that the man is owed nothing. He just contrasts it to the generosity of the king. And warns us that if we hold on to the debts that people owe us, they will hold us captive. Just as surely as if we fail to repay or fail to be forgiven the debts. There's two ways this man could have ended up in prison. Either through lack of forgiveness from the king, 
or through his own lack of forgiveness. We must not cling on to our guilt, our shame, our fear, or our bitterness. If we do, we end up captive. And the best illustration I could find from that, and my favorite, is how to catch a monkey. Now, you might think monkeys are really difficult to catch because monkeys are small, they're fast, they're strong, and they're clever. And that's true. You can't just catch a monkey in an obvious trap. They'll spot the fact that you've put a banana in a comedic kind of trap-like cage, and they won't go inside the trap. They're just too smart for that. You can't catch a monkey the obvious way. But actually, monkeys are really easy to capture. Because if you make the trap just the right size, and you put the bars just big enough for the monkey to put their hand in, and you use such an obvious prop as a banana to put inside the obvious trap, the monkey will come along and slip his arm through the bars of the cage, grab hold of the monkey, grab hold of the banana, and then when he tries to pull his arm back out of the cage, you have caught the monkey. Or rather, the monkey has caught himself. Because here's something that you need to know about monkeys. Once they grab hold of something, monkeys do not let go. You can catch smaller monkeys by putting a peanut in a bottle. Don't try this at home. Uh, But you take a heavy bottle, and the neck of the bottle needs to be just big enough for the spider monkey to put their arm in. You put a peanut inside the bottle, the monkey will grab the peanut, and then it can't get its hand back out again. And it will scream, and it will holler, and it will flail around, and all it would have to do to be free is to let go of the peanut. The monkey will not let go. You could take a sack of 10,000 peanuts and empty it next to the monkey. Unencumbered, completely safe peanuts and the monkey will not let go of the one peanut in the bottle to take any of the freely available peanuts next to it. Now, that's funny when you're thinking about monkeys, but it's true of us as well. How often are we trapped by our fear, our guilt, and our shame? How often are there things that we fail to let go of that keep us prisoner? Oh, we're too smart to be caught in an obvious trap. But are there things that we should let go of. Fear which keeps us from that perfect love. Free to enter into relationship with the Father. No one, Alan Alt said, should live a life of nagging doubt, guilt, and shame. No one should hide from God like Adam behind the bushes. Jesus says the kingdom is like this. No one needs to live in fear because in the kingdom, love reigns. In kingdom economics, no debt is is too big to repay. But let us keep short accounts with the king. Jesus put that forgiveness prayer in the center just after our daily bread. Let's settle daily with the king that we may live lives of love with one another and with the king.